Hello, everyone. So for the last two and a half years, an Australian research team has been exploring the issue of injury associated with work in hot conditions. So this has been done at the population level. Now, whether it be analysis of workers' compensation data, surveys of health and safety managers and representatives, or analysis of interviews with workers, uh, this is the first time that the issue has been systematically investigated. And that's a key point. When you do this sort of work, you get a handle on which workers, which jobs, which industries, and what types of injuries, and the scope of the curve, or the slope of the curve, if you like, relating injury and temperature, as well as perceptions about what should be done. For example, more awareness and training, or better management and control. So knowing the risk factors and what people think about management gives us an evidence base to progress this area. So that's the second key point. In theory, uh, traumatic injury, as Peter has alluded to, can arise in hot conditions and without the worker experiencing frank illness. So subjectively, it doesn't look any different, but injuries can occur. And it might arise because of loss of concentration or reduced psychomotor performance or cognitive function or altered behaviour. If the worker takes off their PPE, for example, there could be all sorts of implications, including chemical exposure, for example. So what we believe is that the increased susceptibility of workers, whether it's physiological or psychological, interacts with existing hazards to increase the likelihood of injury. Those workplaces and tasks with multiple hazards or complicated tasks, e.g. working with power tools or ladders or mobile plant, might be a particular risk. It also negatively impacts on decision-making processes, resulting in poor or incorrect decisions that can lead to uh, injury to individuals or damage to equipment. And this can occur indoors as well as outdoors. More research is needed to understand the mechanisms by which this occurs in actual workplace conditions. Okay, so what did we find in our research? When you use an injury lens instead of an illness lens, you get a certain picture of the problem. Lots of different industries appear to have higher rates of injury in hot conditions, even moderately hot conditions, and in indoor environments. Young workers seem to be at greater risk, and the most common types of injuries are to the limbs, including the hands. How big is this effect? There's lots of variability, but the injury claims data show an increase of between 10 and 800% in hot conditions compared with mild conditions. And the biggest increase we found was for electricity, gas and water sectors. What did we learn about what could be done well, the surveys of health and safety professionals point to a need for more awareness of the injury issue and some specific additional heat stress training. However, that's a shared responsibility by all parties in the workplace. That's a key point. Hydration, appropriate information and work practice are key aspects of that shared responsibility. Moderately hot conditions rather than extreme temperatures correlate with the biggest injury burden. Heat wave severity may be just as important or even more important than maximum temperature, as then fatigue may have a greater role. Heat waves can occur outside of the traditional summer months, for example, in November and March, and that's a key point. Finally, yes, we're predicting more and longer heat waves and climate change, but the problem of injury is with us now. Thanks very much, Dina. I think that sets the scene very well for us. So, Sandra and Chris. So, clearly if somebody's actually acutely suffering heat stroke, we hope they won't be working. But what are the safety outcomes that you might see um, associated with just working in hot temperatures? Okay, I speak from lived experience, I think is the term now. When I was uh, growing up in New Zealand, my first job was picking raspberries, and I think I was probably 11 or 12. And uh, I went with my older brother 
uh, he found the work. Was there any training provided about working in hot conditions? You mightn't think New Zealand is that hot, but in places it can be. Uh, no, no training. The employer was like many employers and wanted production. So they wanted that bucket filled with raspberries as quickly as possible and they wanted them as least squished as possible. So that was the extent of the training. So I picked like mad because I was trying to save some money to buy Christmas presents. Um, I think I made it to lunchtime. Was there any water on site? We didn't drink water in those days. Uh, was there any sunscreen? We didn't use sunscreen in those days. Did I wear a hat? No. Didn't, didn't like wearing hats. Um, so by lunchtime, I was quite ill. I had sunstroke. Uh, I, I decided against operating machinery and riding my bike home, so I, I pushed it home. And I think I spent the next two days uh, flat out uh, on my bed recovering. So um, I guess the early stages, you would want to see um, what is the workplace what is the workplace climate like? Is it safe for people to speak up? Is there a heat policy? And, and who knows about it? Is the culture conducive to positively prevent people getting to the point where they start to feel ill and at potential risk of injury? Um, in our line of work, we, we don't see the positive stories. We get calls from people every day, women and very vulnerable, predominantly migrant workers who um, have reached a point where they're in crisis at their workplace. So, and many of them report that they feel punished, they feel targeted if they do speak up, if they're feeling affected or they think themselves and the rest of the workplace are at risk. So. We need to get beyond that in terms of um, how we address this issue, how we approach the issue in the first place. So workers uh, typically will say to us that uh, all of the responsibility for getting to this point of illness and or injury is placed back on them. You didn't drink enough, you didn't do the right thing, you came to work tired. So. We need systems in place. Uh, we need awareness. We need training. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that, Sandra. Um, certainly in, in civil construction um, and marine construction as well, uh, there are good systems in place. Um, people are educated about those things before they actually um, go out into the workplace. Uh, um, we keep an eye on the weather um, and plans are made to, to address those issues. So in terms of good practice, that's, that's what's happening in civil construction. Um, but certainly the, the high risk area would be domestic construction areas and the young workers um, uh, as has been borne out by a couple of uh, recent incidents with young workers, first day on the job, it's a heat wave and they uh, end up going uh, away from the amp uh, <clears throat> workplace in an ambulance. So, Chris, you're in the um, construction sector. So, what are the, some of the safety implications that might go, apart from obviously heat stress and heat illness, but in yeah, terms well, of traumatic injury? As um, uh, as Dino alluded to, you know, people are working with high risk plant, um, and uh, as the statistics have borne out, you know, 48% uh, of all workplace fatalities are falls of less than four metres. Um, working at heights in construction, high risk. It's a, it's, it can be a lethal mix. It would be. Martin, the regulators, I know, across Australia have historically been quite well aware, particularly in South Australia and Queensland and the Northern Territory and Western Australia, about heat illness. Uh, but uh, how focused are you on, have you been and are you in the future on heat injuries caused from working in heat? Look, that's correct. We have been very focused on it and it's still pretty high on the priority. Um, the 12 months I've been at Safe Work, I say we've undergone a lot of change, and part of that is some capability, capability development for our inspectorate. I think it's critical that the inspectorate maintain 
their competency, knowledge and experience in the new and emerging issues, because work's very different to what it was five years ago or ten years ago, and the environment in which we do that work is very different. So before I came here, I was, um, I was working on mining construction companies around Australia, Papua New Guinea, Brunei, Indonesia. Um, yeah, some hot places, and they're all very different. So some were 3,000 metres up a mountain, and when it was beautiful, it was, it was beautiful. But when it wasn't, it was in cloud, and it was wet and cold and miserable. Um, and then Simpson Desert, Northern WA, South Australia. The challenge I had was how do I, as a safety, the head of safety for that organisation, interpret research, interpret what the regulator is focusing on, and what's reasonable and, and what's enough? How much is enough for you to do the right thing? So I'm hearing that the regulators are focused on, on it. Uh, how much you think the inspectors are thinking about the risks like falls from height when, you're, um, when perhaps you're fatigued and uh, your concentration's lapsed? It's really relevant because as an inspector and certainly as a regulator, when, you, when you're going on sites and you're looking at the consequence of an event, and that may well be fall from heights, um, and generally the, the easiest option or the conventional way of looking at that is at the, the practical aspect of it. Was it barriers? Who's had training? What's the procedure say? Has that person been trained in the procedure? Is there a bit of paper that's going to protect that person? Inspectorates across Australia have never really looked at the behaviours or the design of the task. So is the procedure really, does that really consider the risks, hazards and risks in the design of that work? Have they really dug down? Because we've all had procedures um, where we've looked at it and thought, that's a great 55-page document, but that's not going to save anybody from falling off an edge. It's is the design of that procedure or the way it's written forcing a type of behaviour which encourages people to take shortcuts? And by taking that shortcut, you expose yourself to a risk and then you're injured. Now, I don't think what we've always looked at in the past is the other issues such as the effects of heat stress and illness as to how does that affect people's cognitive ability? Um, and is there some other relevant information that's impacting on their decision-making which caused them to do that. So I think from an inspectorate point of view, we've got a bit of work to do to work with our work environment unit to make sure that we're across the latest research, that we understand it, that we're considering it in our site visits and we're talking to employers and workers about it. I guess it, um, it, it all links back to fatigue as well, doesn't it? And, and I know that the jurisdictions are working uh, with industry and uh, unions, in fact, to develop fatigue codes. But, uh, Sam, I can... Yeah, I just wanted to add, like, we certainly hear of people who have sustained injury uh, in very hot conditions at work, so people who work in kitchens, using fryers and so on that they haven't necessarily been trained on, often young workers and often over the busy Christmas period where they've been hired short term. But the thing we hear about most, I think, and it was touched on in, in Dino's research, was the psychosocial issues that arise in workplaces where people are hot, they're aggravated, they haven't perhaps slept enough, Is there a temperature at which people are allowed to stop work? Perhaps I might start with you, Martin. Um, yeah, from my perspective, no, there isn't. So I think you've got to look at individuals, um, look at the environment you're working in, looking at the task that you're doing and the way that you're doing that task, um, and then taking on board the individuals who are doing it and the physiology. So I think it's probably a bit dangerous to put a temperature limit on work. Um, unless you are considering the other factors in part of that risk assessment. So I think once you start having workers who are suffering the effects of heat stress, then that's too late. It really needs to be brought a lot further forward and considered in the planning stage and certainly the design of the work. So I guess uh, also what we know, it's, it's not just a temperature, it's also about humidity and some other factors that um, Chris and Sandra, you might like to tell us about. Yeah, well, absolutely. Humidity is a big factor as well. Um, and airflow and yep. 
general um, radiant heat from uh, surfaces, um, steel, etc. Um, you don't want to be on the roof in 40 degrees, that's for sure. Um, but again, you have to take all the factors into uh, account. Um, so I guess you picked up on something quite important there, is that is that radiant heat, the ambient temperature might be one level, or maybe even the humidity, but it's those environmental factors that also need to be built into the risk assessment? Correct. Yeah, so air movement as well, a very, uh, very important factor, because if there's no air movement and you've got high radiant heat as well as high temperatures, then you've got some serious problems. So do any industries have a, um, a, a temperature uh, that they have in their industrial relations uh, agreements? Yeah, so yep. There are um, some uh, temperatures linked to EBAs, so um, where they'll stop work at around uh, 36 degrees and then move out it's of pretty, direct sunlight. It's pretty hot. It is hot, but um, as we said before, there are many factors. Uh, and then where is that temperature being measured? Because um, uh, it'll be um, 36 degrees in Kent Town at uh, Bureau of Meteorology, but it'll be uh, uh, 32 on the coast at Norlunga. Um, so people in Norlunga aren't stopping work. And Sandra, I guess this comes to your point about whether people feel allowed to stop, whether they can speak up. Yeah, we... We, over the years, have represented a number of uh, workers who uh, work in hothouse uh, conditions, environments, so picking tomatoes is the, is the usual occupation. Um, so they're, they're working in very hot and very humid conditions because that's what's needed for the tomatoes to ripen. Um, and a number of issues that have come up uh, with our clients have been around... Um, incredibly awful ear infections, which seem to have been exacerbated by humidity, uh, dust and chemicals. Um, often the employer will say, yeah, but you, you're, you've always had ear problems. You came to this job with those ear problems. So don't come to me trying to uh, log a workers' comp claim. It's actually your fault. Um, maybe you're not suited to this work. The other interesting case we had with a tomato picker is a long while ago now, but part of their duties was to um, push these trolleys along with trays and they had to fill the trays up and stack the trolley. So by the time it got to the end of the end of the row or the trolley was full, that was incredibly heavy. And uh, because of the humidity in these tomato hothouses, the ground was basically mud. So trying to push those heavy trolleys through mud uh, often resulted in quite serious shoulder injuries. In those situations, we've all got a duty to look after our own health and safety as well as that of each other. So in that situation where you've got vulnerable, well, any worker, but particularly vulnerable workers, um, that they have a legislative right to stop work, to raise these issues, to address it with their, their employer. Um, and I think there's probably a, lot, a, a reasonable proportion of, of the working public who don't really understand that there is a, a law behind it that gives them that support. Um, another aspect of it is organisational culture. Um, so if you do have a culture that's, that's beating workers down in that respect, then quite often they don't, don't know they've got a legal right for that, that duty, but they also don't understand that they've got a voice that they can raise. So I suppose it's giving them the understanding of what the law says and supports them, but also what the regulator can do or the educator half of our business can do, as well as the industry groups and other support groups that are available to them. What are some of the work environment factors that might be going on uh, while people are working in heat? We heard Sandra tell us about sort of in their humidity, the humidity, the, the ground conditions, but what are some of the other in factors that we should be thinking of when we're doing our risk assessment around the, design, around the work and the work environment? So I think for me it's, it it's really starts at the design. Um, so as an employer, my expectation would be 
that the more knowledge you have and the more resources available within your organisation, the higher the standard that I would expect and the more that you should be doing. That said, I appreciate that sometimes it's difficult that, to interpret best practice, but I would expect certainly tier one, two builders and large companies and multinationals that they should be engaging people with the right skills to help them interpret that. So it's not a level playing field for everyone from my perspective. I certainly expect more from the larger organisations. When you get organisations like that that do voluntarily comply, it allows us as a regulator to help and focus our resources on the people that really need support, um, which is the smaller organisations and vulnerable groups. So I think when it comes to managing those risks, it's, it's understanding the design of the task and the work. That would then help to support to write the procedure. Um, I'm a firm believer that procedures don't save people's lives. Um, but it's important that you have a process documented which understands how that work is done in the environment with the people that you have. Then you can apply the adequate controls to, um, to, to those tasks. And, and again, it's not a one-size-fits-all. And it's something that organisations should look at for every place and every time that they do that, because depending on the environment, the same task might require different controls. What might uh, some of those environment challenges be, and what might some of the controls be? Depends on your work environment. I mean, if you're in a marine environment, you've got to consider the swell as well as the, uh, the ambient temperatures and radiant heat and what's the task at hand. Um, uh, and is there a storm front on the way? Um, uh, if you're working in a foundry, you've got a more fixed environment and perhaps there are uh, um, methods of uh, isolating workers from the heat sources um, and creating artificial airflow as well. Whereas if you're on a barge um, doing some dredging, um, then it's unlikely that you'd be able to create artificial airflow. Mm. So yes, it's horses for courses and uh, we have to apply what's reasonably practicable. It's, you're right there, Chris, because even, even things like um, fairly innocuous tasks in, a, in an environment that's not too hot or humid, but you add things like, um, like welding hoods to the equation, then suddenly what can be a fairly um, medium heat, low risk, low humidity task suddenly becomes a higher risk task because of, of the equipment you're wearing. Exactly. So uh, some, some of the powered air um, uh, respirators that you're required to wear when you're removing asbestos, for instance, um, yeah, you can, you've got to have a negative air pressure um, uh, units uh, inside the uh, um, asbestos removal room um, and uh, all the PPE. Uh, you'd be pretty hard to uh, um, manage uh, the airflow in some respects. So. But so what's some practical controls that will be operating then? Well, that's, that's the, that's the uh, million dollar question. Um, some of the uh, PPE is very advanced in that it has its own airflow, but um, uh, I personally wouldn't like to be doing that job on a 40 degree day. So is that things like job rotation though, that would yes, then go and see so your monitoring your workers? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. You're going to have to employ those other control measures like job rotation, etc. And even, even things like, like heat vests and cool packs applied to the body and um, external ventilation. Um, there was an employer a few years ago on a mine site, um, had a number of slushy machines which were just stocked 24-7 so that people could have iced slushies at the drop of a hat. And that helped to bring down core temperature and help keep them cool. So not advocating that you go out and buy a selection of slushies for, for the workplace, but it's that it was a control that they viewed was worthwhile investing in and, and it had a benefit. We've spoken a little about some of the environmental factors and some issues to do with the tasks that are on. But what about the individual and uh, their own risk factors? And perhaps I could briefly ask you, Sandra, to talk about sort of are there gender, are there age issues? What are some of the individual personal factors? And then if I could turn to uh, you, um, uh, Chris and Martin, to talk about what that means for in terms of practical controls in workplaces. Yeah, just picking up on the job rotation issue, fantastic idea. When you talk to anyone in the community sector who 
uh, is relying on government funding, perhaps they're an NDIS uh, supplier, um, the, the flat answer will be we can't afford that. Yes, it would be great to have backup workers, particularly where maybe care workers are travelling around, uh, often in their own vehicles, so the air conditioning may or may not work on a hot day. Uh, those community workers whose job it is to go and monitor people whose health is at particular risk during a, a, a heat wave, how much thought do we pay to their working conditions on a day like that? Enormous responsibility if, uh, if you combine a heat wave with a power outage and people in their homes are relying on uh, equipment to keep them alive, basically. So, um, job rotation to, can be used in some industries, but uh, in, in the community sector, there just isn't the funding for that sort of, what an employer would see as a luxury. So, we see workers going to people's homes um, without even any, uh, the, the poorest of risk assessments around where, whose home are they going to, what is going on in that home, what risk are you at in that home. So uh, things around domestic violence, so walking into a house where there may be uh, a violent partner. Now that doesn't have to do with heat, I get that, but um, we rely on these workers to work through a heat wave to uh, provide services to very vulnerable people in our communities, and thank goodness they do. So is there a gendered aspect to this? I think there is. You would expect me to say that. So around uh, things like a heat wave and uh, perhaps inability to get quality sleep, uh, let's talk about women who are pregnant. Uh, there are periods through pregnancies where many women say, oh, you know, I can only sleep a couple of hours. Um, perhaps a, a parent is a sole parent with the care of a number of children who also aren't sleeping well. Uh, so if you can get a few hours sleep, good for you. Uh, during that few hours when you expect to sleep, you may have the care of uh, a baby who needs to be fed during the night or another member of the household perhaps who has a disability who needs to be turned, rotated uh, during the night. So those people are not going to be flash when they go to work the next day. Uh, we know that heat waves in Adelaide will often last for, what, eight days? Um, by the end of that period, people are probably not fit for work, not fit to be driving around in their car. There's some other individual factors that uh, we need to be thinking about in terms of risk of injury. So everybody's got different tolerance to heat, yep. and uh, this applies to elite athletes as well. Um, some some people can go out and play football in the uh, early uh, part of the season and not suffer, but um, others um, are suddenly uh, being carted off the field and needing ice vests and hospitalisation. So yes, everybody's got different levels and of course, as we know from uh, public health warnings, uh, the very young and the very old are, uh, are the big risk factors. I guess this comes to a bit of a tricky question, Martin, about reasonable adjustments and the extent to which uh, an employer needs to be understand, know their work force and the issues and build risks in for people's variability perhaps they've got a they're unwell or their fit as we're hearing their fatigue so it's pretty tall order for employers how are they going to manage that look it is and 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 there isn't there isn't a silver bullet answer but i think what i said before about um, larger organisations, more mature organisations, are those with a mature safety culture, the larger multinationals and tier one and two um, building companies. The expectations is that, that their standards should be higher because they have the resources and the people available to, to, to breathe life into that. Um, Mum and dad businesses, there's not an expectation that they'll have a, that level of maturity. And, and I understand that. As a regulator, I'm sympathetic to their position. Um, 
and we will do everything that we can in our power to help them. Um, but that said, depending on the severity of the breach and the injury and the other factors will determine whether or not we, we prosecute them. Uh, and look, the prosecution aspect is just one compliance outcome. There are a range of others that we'll consider before we get to that. As a regulator, I don't want to be in court prosecuting everybody for every breach. It's completely impractical to do that. That should be the most serious cases. But certainly from a regulator's perspective, there's not a will for me to come down with a heavy stick on everybody for every single breach. It will be proportionate and certainly everyone will be considered on their own merits. But if the risk is known, you expect it to be controlled? I, yes, most certainly. And, and in, in many respects, um, the fact that the, our temperature and our environment and our climate is getting hotter is, is no shock to anybody, um, unless they've been living in a hole for the last 10 years. Um, I think the shock is, is how quickly it's changing um, and that we need to keep up with. So, Chris, you're um, representing the construction sector. Here's a sector that routinely works in hot environments. You've alluded to working on roofs and places where there's lots of radiant heat going on. So, what are some uh, of the um, practices that you're seeing out there that are good practices that we should be paying attention to? Yes, yeah, so um, uh, certainly there's uh, a lot of uh, education um, in terms of the uh, requirement to keep hydrated, uh, have processes in place for rest breaks, uh, shade um, uh, obviously is a big one as well because um, you can work longer if you're in the shade. Um, so portable shade equipment su supplied um, uh, during the weather. Um, job rotation, um, crib rooms that are air conditioned to rotate through. Um, those are the best practice sort of principles that are applied. Um, certainly uh, the this more simpler um, uh, control measures that are used by some sectors, like the housing sector, um, uh, start early and finish early. Yeah. We just simply knock off um, by one o'clock. So what about um, fatigue and what you, you, Martin, reminded us that health and safety is everybody's responsibility and workers have a duty to look after their own health and safety. So what is it that we can do uh, when, in those periods when the temperatures are rising to actually look after ourselves and particularly around fatigue and those issues? One of the important things for me in relation to fatigue is it's not just lack of sleep that brings that on. There are a lot of other factors in there as well. So, so diet and stress and anxiety and those other things can affect it. Um, the other thing I would say is we're quite fortunate, Adelaide, is to have a really advanced... Um, research and an academic footprint here in, in the Sleep Research Centre. Um, Dr. Savorn Banks, uh, I spoke to her a few years ago and took her and some of her colleagues to PNG to do some research on, on for, for us in there in relation to fatigue. Completely different, same sort of risk, but in a completely different environment. Um, different food, different work patterns, different altitude, different temperatures, different culture, different people. Um, the issue there wasn't necessarily the fatigue on site at work. It was back in the village on their week field break and that they were actually turning up to work fatigued. So I think in relation to that, it's, it's not necessarily looking at fatigue in isolation. It's going back to that planning stage and design and considering the other factors that are relevant on it and actually looking at it holistically. Have you got some suggestions, practical suggestions about fatigue management when the temperature's rising? We, we talk about compassion fatigue in the caring sector. It's a different type of fatigue, but um, we know that good workers, often very low-paid workers, slog their hearts out because someone has to do this work and they find it rewarding. But there's nothing like a, a crisis period, like a heat wave or like a bushfire, that will bring all of that um, discomfort, discord, uh, resentment to the surface. So we talk about that as, you know, managing worker burnout is really important as well because 
I hate the word resilience, but if workers feel strong and uh, feel that their contribution is valued, um, they're going to be less likely to fall over at a time when we're all challenged by uh, environmental considerations. I think that's a really interesting point that comes to a conversation we were having before we... about the interrelationship of all of our hazards. In fact, that working in heat is not something to consider in isolation. Perhaps, Chris, you know, with your practical insights, um, have you got any comments on that about heat just being one of the hazards that needs to be considered? I think you've hit the nail on the head. There's, uh, there's um, uh, many attendant uh, issues uh, in the workplace. We need to be cognisant of all of those um, factors and have to uh, obviously incorporate them into a, a holistic approach to risk assessment um, for the task at hand. Uh, and obviously uh, the great one is to look out for your workmates. So if somebody's not looking like they're faring too well, understand what the signs are and then uh, apply appropriate uh, first aid. I think that's a really great point. Look, I want to go to one of the elephants in the room here, which is what about for those workers who can't stop work? Perhaps their emergency services, their AMBOs, their firefighters. Martin, what happens there? Yeah, so from my perspective, and certainly I've been on sites and projects, um, another good example is people like shot firers, drill and blast engineers in the mines, working 300 metres at the bottom of a pit. Um, when I was at Prominent Hill, it would get to 58 degrees at the bottom of that pit. Um, so it's about the controls that you apply because there are quite a few jobs that really you can't not do. That doesn't mean you can't control them in some other way. So job rotation, um, the, the use of air-conditioned buildings, portable buildings that you would put on site, um, the PPE, access to water, electrolytes, the training, that sort of thing. Another big one for me is you can have all of those controls on site, but if you've got an organisation that's got a bad culture, that's going to smash down the individual that puts their hand up and say, I'm really tired, then that's a waste of time and money. Because if somebody's frightened to put their hand up and say, I need to stop work, um, then all of the other stuff becomes a bit of a moot point. So culture for me is, is another big one. So that goes to people feeling that they actually have the power to stop. Look, we've just started to touch on one of the really important ones about PPE. You mentioned when we started, Chris, uh, the conversation around you know, uh, masks and those sorts of things. But I understand in uh, many sites it's uh, a narrow requirement that people wear long longs, as you put it. So, you know, what what do you do when the, the PPE itself is actually creating some of the issue? Yeah, well, I suppose that, again, you have to look at um, uh, the design of the clothing and uh, there are many um, new um, items of light clothing that's long uh, sleeved, um, long pants, um, and uh, ventilation under the armpits and the like, so it's it's um, <clears throat> fit for purpose. So again, it's about uh, as with any piece of plant or kit, you have to do a risk assessment. And one of the uh, complaints we get from a lot of women working in construction or other male-dominated industries is when the employer provides the clothing that is required to be worn, it's men's clothing, so it doesn't fit. Um, they're often issued with, you know, a shirt that's way too big and is uh, increasing the likelihood of injury. But they have to wear it because that's, that's what's issued. I think things are improving around um, uh, clothing that is tailored for women's bodies, um, but also around safety boots and so on. Wearing equipment that uh, is going to increase your risk of injury is not a great idea, but um, there's no room for individualism. We're very lucky today because in the audience we've got some extra experts, so I'm going to throw to them. And Ross, I was wondering if, you, you've, um, if you'd like to make some comments around uh, what we've heard today. Any, are, are there some points around um, designing and managing working in heat that you think we haven't actually picked up so far? 
I think we've touched on most of the points. One that um, comes to mind in particular is the pre-planning of work. Uh, and this comes from a, a number of different directions. Uh, with the, the Bureau of Meteorology information that we can now get, we can pre-plan months ahead. You know when there's going to be uh, a pretty good uh, knowledge of the types of temperatures. So we need to educate our work planners to start to design work, particularly outages and, and the like, to occur in uh, better climate wherever we can control that. And the, the concept of sometimes doing a job at night rather than doing in the middle of the, of the day. And I, I think the planning aspect of things we're not doing as well as we could be doing. And uh, so that's one of the, the, the areas that, that comes to mind. The, the other thing Martin picked up on, and I think is probably very, very important, is that the cultural aspect. For the individual to be able to say, look, I'm feeling the, the heat I really need to take a couple of minutes, just have a drink, just to rest, and to understand that that uh, that impacts um, that the sorry that the impacts from that uh, that couple minute break is going to actually have benefits down the line in productivity. The only other one I think is a, a classic example of a, a well planned job. A number of years ago in uh, Central Queensland, a company was doing some work uh, in a very hot environment in a um, a smelter, they pre-planned the work, they built a specifically designed platform with air, uh, air cooling vents and ergonomically designed. It cost them a considerable amount of money, but when they did the business case, it turned out that it saved them double what they'd paid. So you can pre-plan better than what we're doing. I think there's some really interesting insights and I think you've touched on a point that we hadn't mentioned is that there's the human but there's also a financial cost of actually getting it wrong and some productivity benefits in, in getting it right. Did you, either of you want to comment on that? Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind sharing an example. Um, before I started this job three and a half years ago, I was asked to go and fix up some issues at a gold mine in in Papua New Guinea, they killed two people relatively close together, and they were closed down for nine weeks. So that that was $2.4 million per day lost production and overheads. Um, so the cost of getting safety wrong is enormous in lost productivity, the human element, um, the delays in the jobs, as well as the contractual delays and the, the consequences of that. I'm a firm believer that um, if you get the safety right, the quality and the production will follow. Uh, investing upfront in some in some engineering controls might look expensive, but in the grand scheme of things overall, it'll be a drop in the, the ocean. Um, and I, I've said to people a number of times and repeated the adage that if you think safety is expensive, try having an accident. Mm -hmm. One of the issues that we heard about this morning was the use of technology to uh, better... Uh, provide p potential for pre-planning. But in a number of workplaces that I'm aware of, because I've represented clients from there, there is an absolute black ban on using mobile phones during working hours. So um, if people are relying on technology to get a business case to go to their employer and say, look, this is what my app is telling me about uh, the hot conditions that we're working in, um, uh, there are some employers I know who will immediately put them on performance management uh, for accessing their mobile phones during working hours. So we've got, we've got a, a bit of dissonance between uh, policies. So I also know in the audience we've got Dr Richie Garn, so that's, uh, it wasn't planned, but it's a great segue. I was wondering if you can provide any insight in, we've heard about some of the problems with not being able to use phone, but are there any apps or technologies you think that uh, are coming into play here at, that we should be looking at? We can't advocate physiological monitoring for everybody, but I think in the you've asked a question about where people are, you know, where you're in a real emergency situation, maybe, or maybe essential maintenance has got to be conducted. I think in those circumstances, uh, uh, you know, if you can't solve it by problems like uh, ideal solutions like uh, 
job rotation, uh, then I think you do have to consider uh, physiological monitoring. It's, it's relatively easy these days. It's not, uh, uh, you don't necessarily have to have radio pills, by the way, because nowadays we, we get a pretty good fix on people's body core temperature by measuring their temperature in their eardrum, like it happens when you go to see a GP. That gives you, not absolutely accurate, but it's a pretty good fix on your core temperature. What, what we've done is actually measure it in both eardrums and get a, and, 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 uh, go by what is the maximum reading that you can get. So your message for us there is that in some limited circumstances, biological monitoring and high-risk work may have some benefits. Uh, I think it should be considered in some of these yeah. cases, yes, where, you, where people can't, particularly where they can't self-pace. If I could just add that, I think, you've, uh, I think there does need to be more emphasis. First of all, before we're looking at environmental parameters, the capacity for self-pacing. This is really... <clears throat> Perhaps the most important thing you need to be looked at. Uh, I, I learned this uh, a few years ago. I was doing a study on some people exposed to a lot of solar radiation, working all day uh, out under intense sunlight. The average uh, uh, dry bulb temperature during the day was about 39 degrees. And we didn't get any casualties, but because people were able to, and, and their body core temperature was under control. Because what happens is when you when it gets hotter, your productivity drops, and that's a good thing. But I also looked at a group of shearers, and they, it's different for them because when, they, when it gets hot for them, they override the natural tendency to slow down uh, because that's, it'll affect their pay. And we actually monitored their output by because they keep a record of their tally of how many sheep they shear because that determines how much they're going to get paid. And we found when the temperature went up 39, 40, the number of sheep they would shear per hour would still stay the same. And so what happened in their case, unlike the, the, the other outdoor workers I mentioned, their body temperature started to, started to go up. So I think the, the first thing you've got to look at, what is the capacity for self-pacing? I think that's a really interesting insight, and I guess it goes to your point, Martin, about culture and trust. Yeah. yeah. yeah so, sorry. Don't go on, Sandy. I'd like to make a comment. Um, Australia's put a lot of effort into filling uh, job shortages that Australians work that Australians apparently don't want to do. Um, and that is around uh, perhaps uh, at harvest time in agricultural areas. So we're looking more and more at uh, drafting our workforce from overseas countries. So bringing in perhaps seasonal workers or four, five, seven workers. And I don't know, I honestly don't know what proof uh, those employers have to provide about their work health safety practices and policies. So I would suggest that one way of making uh, people a little bit more accountable would be to produce uh, their well-researched, well-written, uh, well-implemented uh, heat policy if that work is going to be carried out in high-risk areas. So I know that in the audience we're very um, pleased to have uh, uh, John Lynn from the Bureau of Meteorology. Uh, your uh, organisation provides invaluable information to Australia on this. We've heard about the importance of, from Ross about pre-planning. So what can the BOM offer us in terms of information to help us plan ahead for... Um, not just heat waves, but as we've heard, uh, just high nighttime temperatures that might um, increase our fatigue. Yeah, well, certainly um, <clears throat> uh, our observational data set is pretty good uh, and will improve over time, particularly as the Internet of Things uh, starts to take off. We'll become a very, very large uh, big data organisation as we start to aggregate all those data sources. So... Um, <laughs> think about virtually any place that wants to put a, something on the internet in terms of monitoring will have it. That's the intention. Um, uh, in terms of the outside environment, we'll be assimilating that into our supercomputer and uh, our numerical modelling will be ensemble-based, so you'll have probabilistic forecasts in terms of certainty of forecasts, as well as very high-resolution data to look at. So there's prospects of actually a lot more data coming out, and when we get that flood of data, it really should probably be objectively taken up best by machine-to-machine -machine, um, responses um, in terms of actually getting the real productivity from it. 
in terms of what we're doing right now, um, we do have capabilities in giving seasonal outlooks and um, indeed extremes outlooks will be provided on a 12 month out looking forward basis probably in about three years time for agriculture. So who else wants it is the question. Who else wants to partner up with us to find out how they can use it is really the answer, really real question. The Bureau has taken on a customer centric approach to its uh, strategic plan only in the last two years. So we're looking to how we can partner up effectively to get people using our data better for impact and value and um, we have a zero lives lost philosophy. So we're, we, we're looking for that outcome wherever we can partner up. We're having incredible cut through with emergency services and uh, high levels of government in terms of the pickup of our data. We're not having the same impact across business. So, and we are endeavouring to make those inroads. So, I'd just like to ask our panels to just give us some take-home messages. And uh, perhaps I might start with you, Chris, first. And what are some, you know, some succinct messages for us to take back to our workplaces to think about uh, working in heat? Well, I think the, the key messages are that um, you uh, take notice of your your own uh, capability to withstand heat and um, keep aware of uh, upcoming weather patterns, hydration, and uh, watch out for your work, mate. And I think uh, supporting people to speak up in their workplace and not be victimised for that is really important. So having um, engagement of all parties in a workplace to design a good um, heat policy based on invaluable research. We need the evidence to know what we need to be doing and not doing. I think that's really important. For me, it's about creating the right culture. Um, I'm not sure whether Scott knows, but I did a walk and talk at the ASC yard a few months ago. And I did it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was, that was a really good example of an organisation that has that culture. So, Because when you go around and talk to people, they were quite happy to stop. And it was just, it was a pleasure to go into that sort of environment. To get there, if you're not certain how to get there, come and ask us. So I'm trying to engage industry and I'm trying to work with our partner agencies to be more open and receptive. SafeWorks got some very talented specialists, a couple of which are here and I'm looking at them now, um, who are more than willing to provide some guidance and advice. So I appreciate that none of us know everything, but we'll know somebody who can help. Um, it's just a case of reaching out. I'd like to thank our panellists and to take the insights uh, that we've heard today and as we head into the hot time of the year to start applying them pre-planning as uh, Ross has reminded us to do to actually anticipate the risk to our risk assessments and bring in real uh, risk controls.